I'm Rachel, the creative director for Ramdas's Love Serve Remember Foundation, and I'd like to welcome you to our Inner Academy, a virtual Dharma Hall where our family of wisdom teachers will help you navigate your daily life by bringing ancient wisdom into a modern context. With over 200 hours of audio and video teachings, meditations, and practices from teachers like Ramdas, Krishnadas, Sharon Salzberg, Jack Kornfield, Roshi Joan Halifax, Joseph Goldstein, and many more. The Inner Academy is your core resource for finding balance, presence, and navigating the ups and downs of your daily life. The Inner Academy has guidance for every step of your journey. Choose from an annual or monthly membership and gain access to past and future courses, retreat replays, virtual community, and much more. If you've been familiar with Love Server Member Foundation for a while, you'll know that most of our offerings are given freely or on a sliding scale basis. So when you subscribe to the Inner Academy, you're paying it forward and bolstering our ability to continue creating accessible offerings for all in the future, as Ramdas wished for us to do. Be here now and start your journey with Ramdas's Inner Academy today. For more, visit ramdas.org forward slash Inner Academy. everyone. This is Chris Grasso with the Indie Spirituals Podcast on the MindPod Network. My guest today is Jameson Monroe, and I'm going to tell you a bit about Jameson here before we jump into the conversation. As a person in long-term recovery from depression, trauma, self-harm, and substance abuse, compassionate and effective treatment of adolescents Adolescent Health is mission critical to Jameson Monroe. He's the founder and CEO of Newport Academy, a series of healing centers for teens and families struggling with mental and behavioral health issues. With locations in California, Connecticut, and New York City, Newport Academy encompasses four state-of-the-art residential treatment programs, two comprehensive outpatient programs, and three nationally recognized therapeutic high schools designed specifically for teens in recovery. An executive producer of a truly game-changing documentary about the prescription drug abuse epidemic among our nation's youth called Behind the Orange Curtain, Monroe is a regular national news contributor on the topic of adolescent mental health to CNN, HLN, CBS, and other major news outlets. Monroe has testified in front of Parliament of the United Kingdom on the subject of teen prescription drug abuse. As a co-founder of DrugsOverDinner.org, Monroe is a big part of our nation, having over 10,000 dinner conversations about the impact of drugs on our society and making a push to end the stigma associated with addictive behaviors. Monroe's global impact has been recognized by a host of internal dignitaries, and his tireless efforts have earned him several accolades, including the illustrious Mona Mansell Award, which was presented to Jameson in 2014 by the Freedom Institute for his indelible mark on the addiction community and his passion for positive change. Monroe currently resides in New York City and serves on the board of directors for several nonprofits and some of the world's most progressive creative thinking projects, such as the Inspiration Foundation and the Global Adolescent Project. Jameson Monroe continues to raise the bar wherever his passion and commitment takes him. Jameson, thank you so much for being with me today. My pleasure, Chris. Thank you so much for having me on. My pleasure. Would you believe I actually just read that having to cough the entire time and holding it in? You can now cough. Go for it. There you go. <laughs> Thank you. Just a sip of water. Yes, doing that. There you go. So how are you today, my friend? I'm doing excellent. I'm so happy to take a little bit of a break and be able to have a chat with you. Awesome. Well, thank you. I know you're very busy, so I do appreciate the time. I figure we would start out kind of with a bit of your background. Um, You know, as it says in your bio, you're a person in long-term recovery from depression and trauma, self-harm and substance abuse. So can you share a bit about your experience with those things and ultimately really how you're able to pull yourself out of it? Yes, absolutely. I'm happy to share. Um, And on that note, um, I'm always happy to share my story because I I definitely think that anonymity perpetuates stigma. Mm, Yes. So um, um, 
barring any adjectives, um, I, you know, I, I like to be just an example that recovery is possible. Yeah. Period. Um, you know, because yeah, I was a person that was in the depths of all of those things. Um, and, and, you know, with the help of a lot of other people, um, was able to crawl out of that hole um, and now be able to, to help other kids do the same thing, which is pretty awesome. Um, so I, um, I'm originally from Texas. I grew up in, um, <clears throat> you know, from the outside, looked like a, a solid family situation. Uh, parents were married. Um, dad had a really, you know, good job. He was in the finance industry. Mom was a stay-at-home mom, um, helped out with my, my dad had his own, own, you know, finance business, and mom helped out with that every now and then. I had an older sister and a younger brother, and, um, you know, we went to private schools and, you know, all that stuff, and, and from the outside looking in, you may think that it was um, it was good, mm. um, but but I can tell you from the inside, it, it was anything but. Um, there was a lot of fighting um, between my parents. Um, you know, my sister's nine years my senior. Um, she developed a number of um, codependency issues, self esteem issues um, when she was eighteen and I was nine, and my brother was seven. Um, she attempted suicide while babysitting us, um, you know, so starting at that, that age, I was witness to some of these situations that I really didn't, I couldn't understand them. I couldn't comprehend them, but looking back now, I know that they made me extremely uncomfortable, um, you know, from the day to day kind of parental issues to, to, to larger issues like my sister and things like that. Um, and then looking back now and looking at the kids that come through Newport Academy, I didn't really have a place to talk about these things. You know, we didn't, you know, no one ever said, why do you think your sister tried to kill herself? You know what I mean? Yeah. It just, you know, no one ever asked me or my little brother kind of our opinions on the matter. Um, and, and so I, I, I mentioned that just because such a significant issue um, in my frame of reference these days would warrant significant therapeutic intervention, you know. Um, but a lot of times I see a lot of people may dismiss that as um, someone being not young enough to process it, um, but that's exactly why they need to process it, because they're not able to do so internally. So yeah. they, need some, they need some words and some, some vocabulary to be able to voice the, the feelings um, when situations like this happen, um, and I need that at, at that age. Um, nonetheless, um, you know, when I was younger, I, I fell into the role that I see so many kids doing of kind of the overperformer. Um, I was, I excelled in, in athletics, um, playing all sports, um, and academics, um, number one in my class in my junior prep school. And then, um, you know, and and that was what it was expected. You know, you made good grades and you, you, you made the all-star team. And that's, and that's how I was shown kind of attention and love and affection from my parents. Mm. Um, and then high school rolled around and, um, well, girls and parties and alcohol and other substances entered the picture. Um, you know, and, and, I, and I found great relief in, in all of those things. Um, because I could escape uh, myself um, in other people, um, in other situations, um, and especially with with drugs and alcohol, took me out of the out of the present moment, if you will, um, and one that I did not feel comfortable in, um, kind of wasn't comfortable in my own skin, if you will. Um, so. You want me to go through, keep going through my story? And yeah. Because you asked me a big question. It is a big question, and I love everything you said so far. But So we, we've kind of gone over, I mean, a, a lot of heavy stuff already. But I'm interested. I know you said with the help of a lot of people, you were able to start pulling your, yourself out. But, um, you know, I, I would love to hear a little bit more about that, you know, coming through it. Totally, yeah. Um, I mean, I think to come to the other side, i got to go a little bit deeper into, into what happened, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and... And so, yeah, starting uh, at the beginning of high school is when I started experimenting with substances. Actually, starting with Adderall um, was the first, you know, drug that I took. Um, and I think that goes overlooked a lot. It's amazing the assessments we do on kids that come in Newport Academy. And that 
class of ADHD drugs is ADHD drugs is often overlooked. Yeah, you know, um, as as the first drug that the kid takes, and and more and more these days. And this was back in the '90s for me, but even you know, 20 years later now, um, it's only become even worse that kids are taking them. Um, off prescription, trading them, you know, and not really thinking anything of a prescription amphetamine, which is only kind of one carbon molecule away from the meth and breaking bad, you know, yeah. so it's, uh, it's dangerous. Um, but so that was my kind of first, first high, if you will, I guess, at least from drugs. Um, I definitely used to get high off sugar a lot, yeah. <laughs> but that was allowed. Yeah, um, right. That was, that was endorsed. And so, um, so yeah, that and then and then alcohol came in the picture, and then other prescription pills, and then marijuana, and then eventually, um, you know, went off to college, and um, and that's when cocaine came in the picture, and, and more drinking and more pills, and that was kind of my mo for the next six years, and I found myself um, in and out of uh, a handful of treatment centers from my late teens to my early twenties. And, you know, some of them were, were larger facilities where I was, want to say, 40 kids, um, mixed guys and girls, which I have to say was very, very distracting. Um, and, and a lot of kind of do this and do that, you know, um, and just, you know, just do, you know, kind of from an authoritative point of view, if you will, um, demand point of view and 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 this is the way kind of thing um and not not more of a not more of a motivational kind of what makes you tick what makes you happy what drives you kind of not a personalized approach um and i'm I'm using kind of the simple simple terms because that's that's the most easy to understand um instead of like throwing out different therapeutic modalities but um and, and that just didn't work for me because, well, I like to do my own thing. Um, <laughs> and, and, and I didn't, and, and that wasn't really accepted a lot of the places that I went. Um, you had to do it their way. Yeah. Um, and they had one way. And, and everybody had to do it that way. Um, and, and that's just not who I am. Um, and that's not who a lot of people that I know actually are, um, especially not ones that end up in treatment. So, um, so I, uh, you know, I floundered. I was in and out of bits of you know sobriety for say you know a month or up to six months at one point in time during that time period on only to try and go back and, and kind of exist use like a normal human being um quote unquote there is such a thing and then um only to only to relapse pretty heavily um back into everything and so but then when I was uh, when I was 24, um, I landed in a place that, that took that personalized approach and, and asked me, you know, well, first of all, why I was so unhappy. Um, and after saying, what are you talking about? Then, yeah, <laughs> after a second of what? And then, you know, actually being, you know, t- being able to take a look at my entire life and realizing that I was extremely unhappy and that I was, in fact, self-medicating um, and utilizing behaviors and substances to numb out um, and to avoid myself um, and to avoid, you know, any pain that I had, which was, you know, a result of trauma of my of my childhood, and um, and then only per- perpetuated uh, with my use and abuse of, of like I said, people, places, and things. And so, um, so when when that when that was happened, when I was able to admit, you know, that I was was in pain. Um, and then I was able to work with professionals to identify where that pain came from and where all my insecurities came from, was able to find a way, a way out of that, a way to heal that pain, um, through multiple different modalities. Um, and, and then, um, but, but, but a big part of what helped me was a lot of meditation, um, somatic experience, um, motivational interviewing, um, some CBT, um, and a lot of guided imagery, um, and actually, you know, some people may call it kind of clinical hypnotherapy, stuff like that. But a lot of meditative practices, um, whatever you want to want to label them as, uh, is a big part of that. And then yoga and meditation became a big part of of a daily practice um, early on in my recovery that helped me 
connect to source, connect to myself, connect to my own spirit of which I had been running away from and been avoiding for so many years. Um, and, um, and then that's what still fuels me today. Um, so, well, thank you for sharing all of that. I mean, everything you said relates to me. I, I had many struggles with relapsing and getting clean as well. And the same as you, my issue was I wasn't doing a lot of, well, first of all, I wasn't doing the inner work, but second, I was trying to take that. You just go to meetings, you know, sit down, shut up. And this is how you're going to get clean. There's yeah. nothing wrong with that. But for me, very much like you, I needed other elements. I needed to take a more integral holistic approach to my recovery. And that once I started doing that made all the difference in my life. Yeah. So I completely relate. And, you know, that segues wonderfully into something I want to talk to you about, which is Newport Academy. You know, yeah. as, as we said in the bio, you're the founder and the CEO. And, you know, I've had the honor to do some work there. And I'm always beyond impressed with the model you have set up for the kids, you know, and, and it includes the traditional recovery elements, but also yoga. You have therapeutic courses in a year and you have guest speakers come in. I mean, that doesn't even really begin to do justice to what you offer, but that's a little bit about it. So I would love for you to talk a bit more about that model. I know that you already talked a bit about how that is what worked for you, but, you know, can you talk about that and, and Newport? Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. So what happened, yeah, coming out of my own recovery, um, the, which I said that I've been, um, you know, in recovery since I was 24, yeah. uh, I'm 34 now. Um, so, but when I was 19, um, and I was in a place, um, I was in a place for about four months and it was in the Pacific Northwest. Um, and it was a male only facility. And, and at that point in time in my life, I found some peace and serenity that I had never experienced before in my life. Um, you know, I was, I was, somewhat removed from the pressures of day-to-day life. I didn't really have very many responsibilities except for kind of taking care of myself. Um, I had a job, a part-time job, um, and I was just kind of working on myself and, and, and spent a lot of time in nature. And at that point in time, I, I you know, I was talking to the owner of this program and, and just kind of chatting him up, seeing how he got started and everything. And I came to this realization that uh, that's what I wanted to do with my life. You know, I basically wanted to to do the exact same thing that he was doing, which was maintain my own peace and serenity in my life, and then and then develop a a center um, where other people could come find that same that same feeling um, and then sustain that. And so, um, as soon as you know, I got out of treatment the last time, I got a job in a place. Um, with the idea that I was going to learn the operation side of things, having been a, a client, having receiving services, I was going to figure out the side of providing the services, and, and I did. And I, you know, I, I showed up early, stayed late, got promoted, yada yada yada, um, and and then um, you know left that place with the with the goal of starting Newport Academy and um, worked at another place for a, for, for a little bit um, before eventually starting Newport Academy and. Um, Opened Newport Academy in early 2009, so over six years ago. Um, and and so, what what is Newport Academy, um, and and why you know what was it when it started, and what what, what is it now? Um, I think philosophically, it's 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 maintained the same thing. We've uh, physically speaking, we've added more programming and, and centers um, across the country, and. Um, but philosophically speaking, you know, as in, a, in a short way of putting it, we are a, we're a series of healing centers for teenagers um, ages 12 to 20 years old that suffer from mental health issues, um, you know, including but not limited to anxiety, uh, depression, trauma, self-harm, substance abuse, and eating disorders, you know, and, and, and our kind of main main statement is that we, we believe that the behaviors in which teens are participating, um, so those external physical manifestations that we can physically see kids doing, um, whether that's, you know, gaming, you know, being on the internet constantly, 24-7, whether it's drinking alcohol or taking drugs or cutting themselves or using food and, you know, having disordered eating habits, um, being caught up in relationships, um, you know, using people to help them change their feelings. Um, using sex, um, you know, shopping, 
Instagram, whatever, uh, you know, physically speaking, kids are doing to escape. Those are really just symptoms of, of underlying internal issues, right? And so coming from that premise, um, you know, we, our job at Newport Academy is to identify what those underlying issues are and what those causes and conditions are. And, and inevitably, it's some form of relative trauma, um, you know, that that child has been a part of. Um, and by a part of, I mean, they have been, may have been participatory in that or they may be caught in a systematic uh, trauma that um, may be like an incongruent family system, um, you know, where a family member is getting abused in one way, shape, or form, or they themselves have been a victim of abuse. Um, and so our job is to identify what that or those kind of causal issues are and then work to heal those very much in the same way that, that I mentioned earlier. And, and we do that through traditional psychotherapeutic practices of cognitive behavioral therapy, dialectical behavioral therapy, or DBT. Um, we use motivational interviewing. We use somatic experience. We use guided imagery. Um, we use EMDR. Um, and, and then we use a lot of, um, you know, yoga, meditation, mixed martial arts, equine-assisted psychotherapy, art therapy, music therapy, drumming. Um, you know, you've been on campus and yeah. you've seen our schedule. I mean, you know, we do yoga five days a week. We do martial arts three days a week. We do all the other stuff at least one or two days a week. Um, so it's a pretty involved process. Um, but the idea is that, um, you know, every kid finds something that they can attach to that makes them feel better naturally um, as opposed to ingesting something or participating in another type of behavior that is ultimately self-destructive. Um, and so through that process, um, you know, we create long-term sustainable healing by healing the underlying causal issues and then giving kids coping mechanisms to, to deal with life as they move on because, you know, life's not all sunshine and rainbows, right? Um, you know, <laughs> shit happens. Um, and so it's how we deal with it, right? Um, you know, there's gonna, you're going to fall down a, a lot of times, um, just in life in general. Um, no matter what kind of cards you're dealt with in the beginning, you're going to have issues that arise and then it's how you deal with those issues right yeah. run from them do you meet them head on do you um pause and let them pass by you you know um so we we talk a lot about about that um both kind of in the moment because in treatment you know there's different personalities in treatment and then people are triggered by different things and so we do a lot of a lot of in the moment therapy and a lot of in the moment coaching and then we also um, and we also bring in families. And so a big part of what we do on top of all that is the, the family systems aspect of things because teenagers are only a product of their environment and their primary environment is typically their family, their primary family system. Um, and then it's kind of their peer group and their community. Um, and so what we do is we're able to bring the, the family into treatment um, at least once a week, sometimes twice a week. Families are on campus doing family, family therapy, um, psychoeducation, um, and, and parent coaching. So. And I, I'm going to talk to you about the, the family dynamic in a minute, but one thing I wanted to address before that is, so working with our youth. Now, this is going to sound like a, a pretty obvious question. I'm going to ask you, you know, to talk a little bit about the importance of working with the, the clients that you do in that age range, the 12 to 20 years old. But what I think a lot of people overlook is that there is there really is a trick to that because when you're an adult going into treatment, Usually you're going in, I mean, unless you're court ordered, but a lot of people are going in because they have really hit a tremendous rock bottom in their life. I mean, that was the case for me. A lot of the kids that are coming into you haven't hit those rock bottoms, but the beautiful thing is they don't need to go to that place in order to start truly healing and turning their life around. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about really connecting with the kids before it gets out of hand. You know, it, is it really possible? Obviously, it is because you have a great success rate. But can you talk a bit about that? Um, yeah, I think it's absolutely positive. I think uh, possible. The the concept of rock bottom is a relative term, right? Right. Um, you know, and I think what what we can do at Newport Academy is is arrest the progression of the self-destructive behaviors mm. by allowing kids to identify the fact that they are uh, in pain yeah. 
you know, and and then they realize that that pain's not going to go away with the way that they're dealing with it, um, and that there are other ways to deal with it, right? So, um, you know, it's once again, it's not it's not the behavior, um, and and that's when we look at rock bottom. I think that's what we identify with is the heroin addict on the street or the meth addict in jail. You know, that's a physical rock bottom. But we don't have to get to a physical rock bottom. We can hit an emotional rock bottom. And if, in my opinion, if you're if you're using substances or or behaviors um, in a self-destructive manner in which a group of people have intervened upon you and placed you in treatment, that um, you know that you're probably at an emotional rock bottom underneath all those layers. And so that's what we do: is we help to peel back those layers and identify that emotional rock bottom and 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 kids, and, and, and we allow kids to, you know, understand and come to the realization on their own that they don't have to suffer anymore. Yeah. Um, it's just not necessary anymore. Um, and then we help guide them through the process of finding yeah. recovery. So. The, the emotional aspect is huge, and I'm so glad you addressed that, because where I was at in life, I could deal with feeling like shit. The withdrawal sucked, but I could deal with that. The physical pain, I was used to that. What I could not handle was the emotional brokenness, the utter despair that I would feel, you know, the hopelessness. It was, so for me, it was a consistent physical rock bottom just underlying everything, but the emotional rock bottom is what really was the worst. So that's my experience of it. So thank you for, for addressing that. Um, And so, like I said, I want to talk about the parent and family aspect, and I would love for you to share from your experience, um, you know, and for those parents or family members uh, that have children or nieces or nephews that are struggling with addiction or depression or self-harm, what do you want them to know and what can they do? And I'm sorry, I I catch you mid-sip of water. (laughs) Oh, he's, he's, he's drinking the whole glass for those of you listening. Nice job. Yeah. <laughs> Just get it out of the way. Right, right. So, um, well, it depends, you know, on where they are in that continuum, right? Um, I think it all starts early on. Um, and, and this kind of gets, you mentioned drugs over dinner earlier, but it kind of gets into that situation of, you know, I, I want to talk about before problems start manifesting um the family members are going to notice and that starts with um you know creating a safe space in the home for kids to talk about their feelings Mm. you know um and that's something that in 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 speaking with a lot of the kids that end up at newport academy um and people that i work with in the field and people that are in recovery you know we talk a lot of bit about you know why people used and and people used um to escape um, some sort of uh, insecurity, some form of pain, um, uncomfortability, trauma. You know, people were using to, to escape from that. And and then every time I ask people if they had an open or free space to talk about things like that where they felt comfortable before they ever started using, um, they almost always say no. No, there, there was no space for me to share this load that I was carrying around. Um, and, and that's why when I found say marijuana, um, and, and I could escape, you know, and, and, and that elephant got off my shoulders. Um, it felt so damn good. Um, and, and then that became where, you know, where they went back to, um, when they needed that relief. Right. And that can be in any type of substance or behavior. Right. So, um, but for, for, for parents or, or caregivers of, of children that have started down that path, you know, um, one is the same thing, have a conversation with them, you know, and, and ask them how they're feeling, um, you know, if they know there's usage, why they're using, things like that. Um, but then also find a local professional and try and get them into some type of therapy or counseling and try and, try and mitigate the, the consequences, um, the repercussions of, of self-destructive behaviors, you know, um, and, and, and get a real assessment from a licensed professional, um, um, and then, you know, as much as possible, try to open up that dialogue and open up that conversation of, of how kids are feeling um, and share um, that um, share your own insecurities. 
um, and your own feelings of, of less than. Because um, that's what a lot of that stem, a lot of this stuff stems from, is not feeling good enough. Um, especially in today's society, where you have to, you know, you, you got to go to the best school, to go to the best college, to go to the best grad school, right? To get a job, you know, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, the race to nowhere, per se. Um, and um, it's a great documentary, by the way. And um, and so yeah, that's what I would say. Well, I appreciate that, and. So everything we've been talking about, I feel, is kind of leading up to Drugs Over Dinner, which is a really tremendous organization. I recently had Tommy Rosen, our mutual friend on the show, and we were talking about addiction and the misrepresentation or the misperception that many people have about it, which you also have already said, you know, you think of the heroin addict in the gutter, things of that nature. And, you know, it seems that that's a big part of the inspiration behind Drugs Over Dinner. So I would love for you to talk about the organization, the dinner conversations, you know, that are addressing the impact of drugs in our society. And I, from what I've taken from it, being on the board, it kind of aims to help end that stigma that's associated with these addictive behaviors. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and thank you so much for being a part of, of drugs over dinner. Of course. Um, being on the crew, on the team. And- <laughs> it's an honor. And yeah, as um, and as you said, and I'll and I'll try and elaborate. Um, but but it is an overly simple process um, that we're trying to accomplish with drugs over dinner, and it's and it's kind of step zero, I like to say, um, uh, by just having a conversation of which we don't have, you know. And to give a brief back history is that this is the second iteration of something called "Let's Have Dinner and Talk About Dot Dot Dot," right. and um, the first uncomfortable conversation we had was about death right. uh, and and michael hebb is the brainchild behind the whole concept um and michael's put together dinners for 20 years um with heads of state with musicians with celebrities with regular people you know he's run a in a legal restaurant in his kitchen and stuff like that and it's gathered you know thought leaders um in different areas and and so we took a look at some of our largest issues today that we don't really talk about and, and obviously death is one of those um you know we don't really sit around the the dinner table and you know say how would you like to die or when i die we should do this or if i die tomorrow then you know all my account all my affairs are in order and all that kind of stuff you know and um i just had someone um you know close to me die and um a a friend um and and someone that helped me out with with work and whatnot actually the guy that takes care of our horses in california Mm. and and you know in speaking with his family you know the funeral costs way more than they have you know and it's just and so that's a personal story of what's indicative of this entire country is that you know and an example not to to believe the the death point but On death, you know, if someone dies, a funeral is going to cost a few thousand dollars, and the average income in this country, you know, is monthly income is less than a few thousand dollars. So, you know, if you live in paycheck to paycheck, which most people do, that's an extraordinary expense. And so, um, people file bankruptcy because one of their loved ones dies and they can't cover the bill, you know, and, and that's just crazy. And so, um, the, the death dinner um, has to do with talking about these types of issues so that hopefully we can prevent those, um, but drawing attention to the matter so that other parties can come in and, and become involved um, in assisting people through the process. But it yeah. starts with, with a conversation, with, with, with not sweeping it under the rug, per se, right. um, but, but putting it on the table. Pardon the, pardon the pun. <laughs> uh, but it's true. And so, so then, and, and that launched, and, and, and over 100,000 people have had dinner and talked about death in 30 different countries, and and so Michael said, well, let's go with round two. And so Michael called me um, as well as a, uh, a woman named Angel, and, and we teamed up and, um, and, and launched Drugs Over Dinner, which is um, let's have dinner and talk about drugs. The, the second issue that we feel is a huge issue in America that no one really talks about because of its stigma. Um, and people would rather just not talk about it because it's an uncomfortable conversation a lot of times. Right. And so, uh, but... What we do is we provide a blueprint, um, a very simple framework for people to have dinner and talk about an otherwise sensitive issue. Um, and and drugs over, you can go to drugsoverdinner.org, um, and in about five minutes or less, you can walk through a process in which you, you tell us who you're inviting to dinner, um, what kind of 
area of addiction you want to talk about, whether it's legalization, incarceration, whether it's uh, kids and substances. Whether we, we have a format for parents to talk about kids. We have a format for parents or for kids to invite their parents to dinner and talk about drugs. Um, and, and so you can talk about a lot of these different vantage points, if you will. And then we provide a lot of content. We've got a full library of content. Um, you can read, watch, and listen to any number of, of, of content. Um, and then, um, and then we send you, uh, an invitation in your email. There's no commitment. You can go through the website and, and you're not, you're not bound by any contract to host a dinner after going through the website. Right. And we'll send you and only you an email, and then you can choose to disseminate that to whoever you you want to, um, with a, a with an invitation to invite your friends or family members to dinner, uh, coworkers, whoever, um, strangers um, to dinner, and then a simple kind of five step process on on how to have the dinner, which is an opening salvo, three questions, and a, and a, a closing, um, and. I wrote about that um, on the Huffington Post. Yeah. Um, one of our uh, board members, Ariana Huffington, I mean, sorry, Christina Huffington, and I kind of went through that process as an example of, of what happens at a dinner. So um, it's very simple. Uh, but like you mentioned, the, the goal is to simply have a conversation um, to get rid of the stigma around it. Um, inevitably, anytime I tell people what I do for a living, um, they say, oh, really? Well, you know, <laughs> or that I'm in recovery. They say, oh, really? Me too. Or they say, oh, really? Well, my kid or really my dad or right. my uncle or my cousin or my neighbor, you know, everyone knows somebody that struggled with one form of addiction or another. Right. So but no one's really talking about it. So this is a way to talk about it. It's a, it's a huge health care factor. Um, you know, the cost of addiction in our society is about half a trillion dollars a year. Um, 90% of our prison population is made up of those, um, you know, drug-related incidences, mm. you know, whether people were high at the time um, or they were, you know, stealing something in order to buy drugs, whether, you know, they have to do with addiction. 90% of people in, in our prison system oh, yeah. is overcrowded. And so it's a big public issue that, that we're not really talking about. Right, right. So... I mean, what I love is that there are so many different conversation starters that you guys offer people. Like you said, even kids can invite their parents. I mean, there's just so many different options for people to choose from, to sift through. The library is extremely comprehensive. It's a really great offering. One of the things I found very fascinating that I've been doing some research on, and uh, others like Gabor Mate have been talking about this, and it's a bit controversial, but something that drugs over dinner, one of the... Uh, topics is the therapeutic benefit of certain drugs in recovery, you know, things like ayahuasca or DMT. Um, in your experience, whether you directly with your own research or the dinners, I mean, not saying you taking ayahuasca, but, you know, you with who you've talked about or who you've talked with, et cetera, that have had these conversations. What's your thoughts on that? So, I mean, it... I, I have a friend of mine um, that I met in recovery who who first got sober through Ibogaine, quit heroin through Ibogaine. Mm. Um, now, that's like saying I, I got sober by going to detox. You know what I mean? Well, you didn't just go to detox and walk out three days later and you were cured. You know what I mean? 99 out of 100 times, that's not the way it happens, as you know. Um, it's a process, and a lot of times a lifelong process. And so um, when I look at and hearing the stories about ayahuasca or ibogaine or DMT, you know, and, and, and I have people ask me, well, you know, I want to go, I want to go to Peru and do ayahuasca to kick my cocaine habit, you know? And I said, great, (laughs) go do that. And when you come back, check into an outpatient program. You know what I mean? Like if that's what you, if if that's your step one, then go do that. When you come back, We'll get in, you know. We'll, we'll pro- you know, get in a therapeutic program. You know what I mean? Like if that's something that you feel you have to do in order to get find recovery, then you know. And, and in my reading of all the literature, um, you know, done properly, no one's ever died um, from it. So um, you know, it's not like you know. And and, and in my also um, 
you know, research. Um, you know, these are not recreational drugs that you can't function um, in normal society like you can on most other drugs. Right. Um, and so it's not, they're not habitual drugs, right? They're not, they're not recreational drugs, right? And so, um, you know, if you need to go have an experience, and I, and I said, go have that experience. When you get back, <laughs> you know, you're going to go to an outpatient program or you're going to go to 12-step meetings. I mean, you're going to have a program of recovery, right? right. So it's kind of like a, a first step. And, you know, I, I'm open-minded. I'm, I'm an extremely open-minded person when it comes to, you know, how people come to recovery because I, you know, like I personally know you know, people that have found recovery 20 different ways, right? right. Yeah. Some through some through acupuncture, you know what I mean? Like, I know one guy says, I got sober through acupuncture. You know, great, right? I mean, um, you know, I talk to religious people that say, like, I said a sincere prayer one day for God to relieve me of the obsession with alcohol, and as soon as I said amen, I've never thought about alcohol again. Great, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, it is a personal... Um, it's a very personal thing, and, and if if you feel you're called to do something, then I then I support you doing what you feel you're called to do, as long as it's done in a relatively conscious frame of mind, um, and you have consulted a number of people um, about it. Um, but but like I said, it's an ongoing process. Uh, right. There is no what I found is that there actually is no kind of magic pill, and and people that do have um, kind of spiritual awakenings or moments of clarity. Um, those are followed by maintenance of one way, shape or form. Right. Um, so, um, I hope that, I hope that's kind of clear. Yeah, no. I, and I appreciate that. Cause I have a lot of people that ask me that Tommy and I talked about it. Um, and it can be a tricky thing to talk about, but I think you really nailed it. You know, if, if it's part of your first step and if it's done properly under a shaman, you know, I, I wouldn't suggest just go take some ayahuasca, but, um, it, it can. And I, and I, as I mentioned with Tommy, I saw someone who had profoundly, impacted their life who uh, they were struggling with heroin in a big way and it really was the gateway that opened them up and started to turn their life around so like you i'm very open-minded as well and i know people have recovered from church from yoga from you know all sorts of different things so yeah find out what works for you um but like you said there's there's still work to be done after yeah i think that's what kind of turns people off a lot of times from finding recovery is that um a lot of people are closed-minded and only want people to recover the way that they found recovery. Yes, yeah. Um, and they're not open to all their ways. Right, huge turnoff, yeah. And and uh, and that's something very important to talk about. And then, you know, something else I wanted to ask you. Well, I have one more question about drugs over dinner and then a, a final question for you about something you said in the beginning. But with drugs over dinner, I would love to know what you hope the potential or what you see the potential impact could really be on both a large and small scale, small meaning the dinner themselves and large scale meaning in our communities, in our cities, states and nations, you know, what do you guys hope to really see happen with that? So, um, I'll, well, yeah, I'll start out with the first question. Um, the, on the smaller scale, like as far as the dinners goes, I mean, that's really our goal is just to promote the dinners. Yeah. And they take a life of their own, if you will. Um, and with that, we want this year, um, since we launched on May 1st until May 1st of 2016, we want a million people to have dinner and talk about drugs, right? And so um, that's our goal. Yeah. And we monitor that through our, through our website. People sign up. Um, and then they give us feedback on how the dinner went and things like that. Um, and then, so, so on a small scale, well, not, not too small of a scale. It's a right. Lot, That's and, huge. Yeah. And there'll be reverberations around that, but is we want a million people to have dinner and talk about di- drugs and, and addiction. Right? And it's really a conversation about addiction, not just drugs. Cause we talk about all types of addiction, um, sex, alcohol, uh, gambling, um, food, um, all types of addictions. And, and then, um, on kind of a large scale political aspect, if you will, you know, drugs over dinner itself, we don't take any stance, um, on legalization, criminalization, incarceration, or anything like that. Good, bad, indifferent. I mean, we're, we're Switzerland, if you will, when right. it comes to, um, policy, um, so not speaking on behalf of, um, you know, drugs over dinner, my, my, my personal goal is that, uh, drugs over dinner 
um, allows our country, first and foremost, our country and our world to have more compassion for those that suffer. Um, and, and realize that it's not so much uh, kind of a moral issue as it is a mental health care issue. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, use the word suffering in, and that, and, that, and that addicts are truly suffering and they don't know how to deal with that pain and suffering. Um, or actually, I'm sorry, they do because, you know, drugs work, right? That's what yes. I would say. Is, guess what? <laughs> drugs work. Yeah. Uh, they make you feel really good. And they make you forget about your problems. Um, the, the issue is that they don't last very long, uh, and your problems don't just go away on their own, right? So, um, and they can kill you and hurt you and other people around you, right? So, um, but but the fact remains is they do work. Um, they provide a temporary relief um, from whatever ailment you may have, right? Um, just as the way an Advil can relieve a headache. Um, you know, it's drug, drugs work and, and Advil is a drug and it, it relieves pain. Um, so, but my goal is that drugs over dinner will cause more compassion for, for drug addicts and alcoholics and, and mental health care in, in general. Um, and that that'll open up avenues of treatment, um, for those that, that need it, um, treatment as opposed to incarceration, um, um, compassionate care, um, as opposed to um, kind of more archaic ways of, of dealing with it. I mean, I think we've come a long way. Yeah. We've definitely come a long way since kind of the advent of dealing with these types of issues. And you know, before AA, we put people in asylums and then you know lock them up for a long time and tie them to the bed and all that kind of stuff. And then now. You know, nowadays, and, and then the twelve-step programs came along, and then you know, psychotherapy caught on, and then we got CBT, and now we get DBT, and, and now you know, there's a big movement on, on wellness and mindfulness and meditation, and and incorporating you know, um, incorporating the whole gamut of mental health issues, which I'm I'm a big fan of, and I think that you know, I've been a part of, say, twenty. You know, 20 drugs over dinner experiences and a few death over dinner experiences. But in the drugs over dinner experience, inevitably, yeah, the conversation is about addiction. But it always, you know, someone, it, it always comes back to kind of general mental health, you know, and, and depression and anxiety and trauma always has to be a part of the conversation. It always has to be at the table, if you will, uh, when we're talking about these issues. Right, right. Well, thank you. I mean, it's a tremendous undertaking you guys have endeavored upon and, uh, like I said, I'm grateful to be a part, and it's it's really just a wonderful thing that's so very needed. Uh, the The last thing I wanted to talk to you about is something you had mentioned in the beginning uh, when we first started talking about saying that I'm okay, saying that I am a person in recovery, and uh-huh. I am right there with you. I am exactly the same, but similar to like you were just saying, some people believe there's only one way to recover because that's the way they recovered. There's a, a stigma that some people have around no, you know, you're in recovery, you must be anonymous. Uh, Greg Williams did that wonderful film, Anonymous People, covering this. So I would love for you to talk a little bit about that. Why Why is it important for us to not be so anonymous in our recovery? Um, it's important because we're we're finding the opposite. You know what I mean? I mean, the, the stigma exists. And unless we're vocal about the fact that recovery exists, then that common misperception is always going to be perpetuated, right? And so, um, yeah, Greg Williams' film is phenomenal. Um, Greg's got a wonderful event coming up in October. Um, I'll, I'll send you a link to it, and hopefully you can put that up on your site. For sure. Um, and if you haven't, we brought it in the loop. We would love to have bring you in a loop to talk about it. Um, but it's a, it's a big march on the Capitol. Um, in early October. And, and Drugs Over Dinner is going to be a big part of it. We're going to be hosting a series of dinners in Washington that first week of October. Um, and there's going to be a lot of, a lot of high-profile people involved. Um, but it'll be a big movement. You know, we've, and, and the idea is if we don't, then um, you know, the mental health issues and people are going to still be kind of persecuted, if you will, for having mental health issues mm. and not get treated for having mental health issues, right? So we're, we're, we're trying, you know, when you speak out, you know, someone like you and me that have been in long-term recovery, 
um, you know, we're contributing to society these days and not taking from society. Right. Um, you know, uh, you know, I identify as a person in recovery. Um, a lot of people still identify as addicts and alcoholics, um, and that's totally fine too. Um, but the thing is, is they're addicts and alcoholics that aren't <laughs> that aren't stealing, cheating, lying, and and using resources anymore. You know. Right. There are people that have been that are sober alcoholics for twenty years that, and you know employ a hundred a thousand people. You know what I mean? There's uh, CEOs of Fortune five hundred companies that are sober. You know what I mean? And and we didn't know about that because it gives people hope. Um, it gives people hope. At the very least, it gives people hope. And then and, and then as a result of that, we can when hopefully help change policy, um, help help where kind of uh, resources go um, in terms of helping people, um, you know, with, with basic needs so that they can themselves can find recovery. Um, so, yeah, I'm kind of rambling now. but <laughs> No, I'm, I'm following you because, yeah, I, I feel the same way. It's all so important and, and really just to break that stigma. You know, like you said, we're contributing members of society today and making an impact and helping others. So I, I'm right there with you. Agreed. Like if you want to call yourself an addict or an alcoholic right on like but to define yourself at least for me today as simply that is very limiting and i don't think it does justice to those of us in recovery who are making you know a change for the better in the world so i totally agree and i appreciate your feedback on that and anyone listening if you haven't seen the film the anonymous people please do i think it's still streaming on netflix it was for quite a while um if not you can find it online it's really worth checking out so Jameson, I mean, that's all I have. Was there anything I didn't cover that you wanted to talk about before we wrap this up? No, man. Um, you know, I'm just really grateful for your friendship. Um, when are you coming to see the kids? I will be there the 27th of July, I believe, somewhere okay, there. Awesome. Yeah, end of July. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm, I'm excited that our kids get to experience, um, you know, all the stuff that you're able to teach them. I know last time you were here, the staff and the kids very much appreciated it, um, the, the mindfulness and meditation techniques. Um, and, you know, uh, I'm, I'm just the luckiest guy in the world to be able to do what I do, um, which is, you know, lead kids and families out, out of a seemingly dark hole, um, hopeless, dark, dark space to, um, to a place of light. Um, and, and, you know, smiles and, and true happiness, which is just so awesome to see, um, that light come on in the kids and their parents on a daily basis. It's just, I'm, I'm truly blessed. Yeah, man. And I've told you, like, I'm so grateful for the work you're doing. It is so important and I'm honored just to be a tiny part of that. The few times I come in, it's, uh, it's tremendous and inspiring me, to me to see this happening in the world and the model that you create, the model that I didn't have in recovery, but to see that it's growing. So thank you. It's, it's really tremendous work. All right, bro. Cool. So I'll see you uh, in just over a month, my friend. And, and again, uh, thanks for your time. Thank you, man. Looking forward to it. Cool. Take good care. You too. Bye. Bye.